And well, how can you tell if you can trust someone? What, what is the actual nature of when you know that you can trust someone? How can you tell if someone is telling the truth? Here's a surefire way to know if someone is trust, trustworthy. Do they actually do what they say they're going to do? Do they actually show up when they said they were going to show up? Do they fulfill their promises? I was thinking this morning how thankful I was for Pat Walsh when he walked through the door and he said he was going to lead worship and here he is to lead worship. Thankful for Bob Fieldhouse who was leading communion this morning. He said he was going to lead communion and here he is leading communion, ready, even wearing a tie. <laughs> Looking more handsome than ever, if that's possible. I can think, I'm sure we all can think of times where we were stranded and where we were waiting for a ride. Earlier this week, my truck was in the shop. I know it's shocking, but it was in the shop, and I was stranded. And my son, Mikey, came and picked me up. And I was very happy to see the mighty Volkswagen come up and pick me up. He said he would, and he showed up. That's the real telling nature if someone is actually trustworthy or not, do they do what they say? Do they fulfill their promises? And we can all think back, unfortunately, to people who say that they would do things and then fail. Do not keep their word. Do not keep their promises. A friend of integrity, integrity is one that says, I will be there, and they show up. That's integrity. That's someone of their word. Someone who keeps their promises, that's truthfulness. How can we tell if God is truthful? How can we tell that God is the God of integrity? The same way. God did what he said he was going to do. God kept his promises. And how does that affect our hope then for today? And that's what our passage is going to tell us all about today. So if you're not in Romans 15, please make your way over there. We are getting down on it, people. The end is in sight. We are motoring along in our series in Romans. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7 and how we can have solidarity or unity amidst our differences. The beauty of the church is that we all have different perspectives, different backgrounds, different convictions, different consciences. We should not be trying to force everyone into the same mold of all of those things. But rather, we seek to accommodate others for their edification, for their growth. Because Christ suffered for all of us. Because we have God's word, we can hope, or we have hope. And because God enables us, we actually can have unity in these things, these smaller matters. Ultimately, this is vitally important because unity in the church glorifies God. And think about the massive, again, Transport yourself back, as Paul said, in context here. First century Roman church, major metropolitan city. We have now the new covenant church of Christ. We have Jews and we have Gentiles together. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, Gentiles just means everybody who's not a Jew. We have them together in this church. We have the Jews raised under the strict laws of the food laws, the old covenant, the ceremonial laws, all of that. So their conscience is seared with all of that. And then we have the Gentiles who have never even heard of those things. And they don't live like that, and they don't have any reason to live like that. They were never under that covenant. Think about that massive cultural worldview and, and perspective difference that's in that church. And it's in our church as well, though maybe in different matters. How do we love each other despite being different? It happens because we're all trusting the same God. 
That's how it happens. It happens because we all have Christ inside of us through the Holy Spirit. That's where unity comes from. And because God is trustworthy. God is the God of integrity. And how do we know that? Again, his track record. And Paul's going to use a couple exhibits, a couple examples of how God is trustworthy. And example number one is Israel. The Apostle Paul, continuing his thought, he answers the question of the, the question why of the command in verse 7 of chapter 15, which says, Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, for or because I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to proclaim the promises given to the patriarchs. And so a few questions to ask of this text right off the bat. First, who are the circumcised? Well, the circumcised are the Jews. They are Israel. If you are new to the church and you're new to the Bible, and that's all very weird for you, before you grab your stuff and head out the door, listen to me, okay? God literally created the nation of Israel to be his nation. He chose them to work his plan of salvation, and it started with Israel. The plan of salvation started with Israel. God made a covenant a promise to them that they would be a people, that they would have a land, that all of the world would be blessed through them. And the sign and seal of that covenant was circumcision. The sign and the seal of that covenant, God's promise was circumcision. We don't have time to go into the whys of why he did that, but one theological dictionary says, Jews and circumcision, you need to know at this time, were virtually synonymous. It was a special badge of his chosen people, an abiding sign of their consecration to him. It was established as a national ordinance. Needless to say, this never applied to Gentiles because we were never under the old covenant. We aren't Jewish. We are the people of God today in the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. And now circumcision as a religious practice no longer applies. If you want to do that as a medical procedure... And think about that, pray about that, think through that. That's up to you. Let's keep going. What else do we see in verse 8? Note that he said it was Christ Jesus who became a servant to the Jews in order to show something specific. And this is what he shows. The truthfulness of God in confirming the promises made to the patriarchs, meaning, again, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If you read that, many of us are doing the chronological read again this year in Genesis. You see, he repeats the covenant promises again and again and again. He, repeats, he establishes it with Abraham, but he repeats it with Isaac and with Jacob and then throughout all of the 12 tribes. Those are the patriarchs. And what then, he says, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. How? Because Christ came through Israel. And Christ first brought his message of salvation to the Jews first, we saw earlier in Romans, to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And the coming of the Messiah proved God's truthfulness because God promised that there would be one who would come through Israel. And there was one who came through Israel, Jesus Christ. And we can't blow by this. It started with God fulfilling his promise to the Jews, and he did that through the Messiah. And he did that through Jesus. And so the first point is this. God's truthfulness is confirmed by sending Jesus for Israel. God's truthfulness is confirmed by sending Jesus for Israel. Israel knew the Messiah would come. Even hundreds of years before Israel was born in the Garden of Eden, God promised that there would be one to come. 
After the fall, after it all went down, after original sin happened, God came in and he executed judgment on the serpent and he preached the gospel on page three of your Bibles, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, a nerdy way to say that, the first, the previous gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He says, Satan, you're not going to get away with this. You will not have the last word. There will be someone to come from the offspring of Eve. You will bruise his heel. You will put him on the cross. You will think that you have won, but you have not because he will crush your head. He will deal you the death blow by the resurrection. The promise repeated to Abraham in Genesis 12. Maybe we see it most clearly here. The promise, the covenant. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to then called Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and in him and him who dishonors you I will curse, watch this, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. How is that fulfilled? That's fulfilled the same way in Jesus Christ. Now anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Jesus the Messiah came through who? Came through Israel. He fulfilled the promise. Later in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses himself says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And when Jesus came on the scene, what was one of the questions that everybody always asked him? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? They're talking about this verse. Are you the dude that Moses was talking about all the way back in Deuteronomy 18? And he confirmed that he was. The early church of Jesus from the lips of Peter himself confirmed that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. In Acts chapter 3, in Peter's sermon, he quotes this passage and says, no, this is how God confirmed his truthfulness. He really sent Jesus. Acts 3 and verse 22, because he quotes Moses, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And that shall be that, that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all of the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed what these days right here, where Jesus fulfills them. How did God show his truthfulness? Well, first, he showed that the Messiah truly did come through Israel. How about us today? God clearly kept his promise to Israel, and yet most reject him. Today we see Jesus coming through Israel. We know his name. His name is Jesus, the Messiah. He came through the line of David. It demonstrates God's truthfulness, his integrity, his faithfulness. In fact, the Bible says that all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of them. Listen to this powerful statement of biblical truth in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When we say amen, we are agreeing. We are saying that's true. It literally means truth. I am agreeing with this. This is truth. It is truth that all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And that means, church, when we wonder 
And let's face it, when trials come, they can cause us to doubt God. When we see evil in the world, seemingly gaining ground, we can worry. Is God actually trustworthy? Will God keep his promise to forgive me? Will he keep his promise to judge evil? Will he keep his promise to give us an eternal dwelling with him free of sin, sickness, and death? Does God love me? Will God sustain me in my fight against the world, the flesh, the devil? Yes. How do I know this? Jesus. That's how you know that. Because Jesus actually came. Jesus actually did the work. Jesus actually was resurrected. Jesus actually ascended back to the Father. Does God love me? Yes. How do you know that? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of the great love in which he loved you, even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Does God really forgive me? Yes. Look at the cross of Jesus. The blood shed and payment for sin that we just celebrated this morning at the table. His glorious resurrection, which confirmed the sacrifice, was accepted. Does God really forgive me? Yes, he does. Look at the cross. Does God really guide me and direct me according to his will? Yes, look at Jesus, who ascended back to the Father and now is seated at the right hand of power, ruling and reigning, and all things are under his feet. God's truthfulness to Israel was confirmed in Jesus, and we continue to see that bear fruit in our lives today. How? Well, one thing, it's no longer just about Israel. It's about anyone who will come to Christ in faith. Look at verse 9, back in our text of Romans chapter 15, where Paul is not going to quote one, not two, not three, but four Old Testament passages to prove his point. Look at verse 9 of Romans 15. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, you know an Old Testament passage is coming now, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. Okay, so a lot there to unpack, track back to verse 9, it explains the outgrowth of God's truthfulness to Israel, that not only Israel is saved, all nations All Gentiles by faith will be saved. Remember, God promised to Abraham that in him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is how this is happening. That means Gentiles are included. Paul uses the words, in order that. So we see a purpose clause. It's a chain of dependent events. God's truthfulness was confirmed in Jesus, the servant of the circumcised, so that the promise could also be extended to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the people who were not Israel, which many of us can be very, very thankful for here because most of us are not Jewish. Paul then cites four passages to prove his point. There was always the plan of God to redeem the Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Israel. That is what got Israel into such hot water, and that is what got Israel judged because they made it what? All about themselves. They made it all about the Pharisees, the law, obeying the law, the temple, the sacrifices, who they were. They had too much national pride. They They were too inward. And God said, you guys are supposed to be the light to the nations, not just you. Paul quotes Psalm 18, 
I'll read it in context, starting in verse 46. The Lord lives, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. No? No other youth group kids? And exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued people under me, who rescued me from enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me, delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. You might be panicked here and say, well, that's not what Paul said in Romans 15. The Bible has mistakes. Oh, no. The Bible does not have mistakes. We're dealing with three different languages here, people. We're dealing with Hebrew in Psalms. We are dealing with Greek in Romans. And we're dealing with English here today. And Paul is probably using the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And besides, our word for nations is ethne in the Greek, where we get all our ethnicities And so Gentiles fall into that because Gentiles is shorthand for all of the nations that are not Jewish. Salvation should well up what then? In praise. Because not just Israel. It is the whole world. Remembering in Bible study, shameless plug, Book of Acts, every Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., right up there for men. We were going through the Book of Acts and we see the Gentiles rejoicing after the council of Jerusalem that they were counted to be worthy through faith to receive salvation, that they did not have to obey the old law, that what they did was justification by faith. They believe in Christ and they are declared righteous. Next, we see Paul quotes from the law in Deuteronomy 32, 43 and verse 10 of Romans 15 where he applied it directly to the Gentile nations once again. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, the Gentiles, the joy of them being grafted into God's people. We spent time talking about this in Romans 11, where we said we weren't part of the original plant. We were grafted in like a wild olive shoot into that plant. So rejoice with the people of God. Next, Paul goes back to the Psalms, and Pat read for us in Psalm 117. In verse 11 of Romans 15, and he translates it as, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him, not just Israel. And last, he goes to the prophet Isaiah in verse 12 of Romans 15. He says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. The Gentiles hope. And I know it's hard for us because I know we're not Jewish and the background of that, but think about that, that they actually now are grafted into the promise of God. And that's what the Lord always intended, that all who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Think about what's going on in Isaiah at the time that he was quoting this in the original context in Isaiah 11. Defeat and exile were imminent. They were, they were finally receiving the judgment that the Lord had threatened for so long from breaking the original covenant, but then out of this desperation that Israel felt back then was what? Hope. Calvin put it this way. This prophecy, speaking of this last one in Isaiah, is the most illustrious of them all. For in in that passage, the prophet Isaiah, when things were almost past hope, comforted the small remnant of the faithful by this, that there would arise a shoot from the dry and dying trunk of David's family. And then a branch would flourish from his despised root, which would restore to God's people their pristine glory. Think about that. A a log, a tree that has fallen over, that is dead. There's nothing growing from it at all. That was the nation of Israel. They were exiled 
because of their sin against God. And he says, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a shoot, a, a, a root or a shoot in Hebrew, same word, that's going to grow up. Imagine seeing a green shoot coming out of a dead tree. That's what God's talking about. He says, who is this root of Jesse? Jesse being the father of King David. The scriptures told us that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So who would this root or shoot or fresh branch of the tree of the dying tree of Israel of Jesse be? In the book of Revelation, Jesus tells us clearly that it is himself. Revelation twenty two sixteen says this, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says, that's me. I am that. I am the one that will come through the dead, dying trunk of Israel to provide hope for the nations. Who is the hope of salvation for the Gentile nations that they will praise God for? Jesus himself. So how do we know God is trustworthy? Second point, God's truthfulness is confirmed by sending Jesus for the nations. Not only was Jesus sent, the Messiah sent for Israel. We know that. We saw that. Now we have even more confidence in who God is, in his truthfulness, because he sent Jesus for the nations, not just Israel. And that's the way it always had been. And Paul goes to great lengths to quote Old Testament to prove that to us. Salvation from sin by the Messiah was not only foretold in the entire Old Testament, it actually happened. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the root of David. Now, one important caveat, which you probably already realize, this isn't universal salvation. This isn't just Jesus showed up to give salvation to everyone on the planet no matter what. No, you do have to trust. You do have to repent of your sins. See Romans chapter 3 and a couple months ago when we went through that. You do have to turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith for this to apply. But I want to look at some of these words that the, the verse cites here that Paul cites from the Old Testament. He says, praise your name. Sing to your name. Rejoice. Praise the Lord. Extol. We don't use that very much. Lift up. Extol. Bring attention to. Because in him we have hope. And again, probably 99.9% .9 of us in this room are Gentiles. We're non-Jewish. And we Gentiles frequently blow by that truth. That guys, we were in on this in the beginning. We've got to remember this. It didn't start with us. It started with Israel, and we were grafted in. This should bring us joy. This is why he chose these passages. It should bring us joy. We should want to praise him. We should want to sing to him. We should want to extol him because he grafted us in. We should realize the hope that we have through him. So how should that change our Mondays? How should that change our parenting and the survival mode seasons and our, our marriages? How about how should that change our inner monologue where we struggle with ourselves? God set his eyes upon you. He opened your heart to hear and understand the word of God. He grafted you into a promise that you weren't in on in the first place. Is that not mercy and grace? Is he not worthy of trust? Talk about encouragement, talk about joy, talk about hope. But is this plan complete? Of course not. 
That's why we support missionaries to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, to all people groups, to all Gentiles on the face of the earth, and bring them the word of God. That's why we financially support Bible translation, to bring them the word of God in their own language. That's why we financially support pastors and pastoral training centers, seminaries, church plants, and churches to be kingdom outposts, to bring the good news, the knowledge of salvation to people all over the world in every nation on earth. May God continue to raise up missionaries, pastors, church planners, to bring the hope of salvation to all the Gentile nations. There are many that have not heard the gospel in their own language. We can get together if you are not one of those who are, who are called to go. Be one of those who support the ones that do. We're very proud of the fact of how much we support missionaries. 10% of our budget goes to missions, international missions and local missions. And we want to continue to do that. If you can't go, and maybe if you can't give as much as you would like to, there's something we all can do. Pray. If there's only a time that we would gather together as a body and pray together, and we include praying for our missionaries, oh, that's right, tonight at 6 p.m. in the law office, we do such a thing. We pray for each of our missionaries by name. To do what? To do this to go and bring the message of Jesus, the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the plan of salvation to nations who have not heard it before. And we get together and we pray. So where does that leave us? It leaves us squarely on one word that Paul has already used, the word hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul closes with another prayer, much like last week we saw in verse 5, where he called God the God of endurance and or encouragement. Rather, This week in verse 13, he calls God the God of hope. Isn't it great that God is just not limited to one thing? It's like, sorry, God's just the God of salvation. If you would like to go to the God of hope, you can leave a message after the beep. No, it's like, he's the God of all things. He's not just the God of salvation. He's not just the sovereign God. He's not just the creator God. He's not just the God of mercy. He's also the God of hope. He's the God of endurance. He's the God of encouragement. He's the God of hope. Probably someone needs to hear that this morning. Probably someone just says, that was worth getting out of bed and listening to the bald guy talk. God is the God of hope. He is hope. You need hope. You're in the right place. It's because we worship the God of hope, meaning when things don't look like they're going to work out, God sees how they will work out because he's the worker of how it's going to work out. He's the one who does it. He is the God of resources because he's the one who creates the resources to make things happen. This is where hope literally comes from. Can God transform my life, my marriage, my parenting, my sin? Yes. Why? How? Because he's literally the God of hope. He creates hope. That's what he does. He's the source of hope. And that being said, we have to define terms because biblical hope is not like 2024 American hope. Hope has to be based on an object. And your hope is only as good as your object. American hope is as Bonhoeffer used to say, a wish dream. It's something that says, I hope 
I hope I get a pony for Christmas. I hope this happens. I hope whatever. That's not, that's not, you're not really hoping in anything. I hope it works out. I hope to try to do that. Somebody says that. I hope to try to do, you know they're not going to do whatever they just said they're going to do. They gave you like two caveats in there. I remember when I was a corporate monkey and as a project manager and something would go sideways on a project and I'd be called into my boss's office and he'd want to know what I was going to do to fix this project. And I said, well, I hope. And as soon as I know I said that word, I know I was going to get it because he used to always say the same thing. Hope is not a plan. What are you going to do about it? Right? Sometimes that's it. We just throw up this generic hope. That's not biblical hope. That's not biblical hope. One commentator defined it as a firm conviction that the future promises of God will be fulfilled. See where we're going with this? The object of our hope is the God of hope. And it's a firm conviction that the future promises of God will be fulfilled. R.C. said it this way, hope is faith looking forward. Hope is faith looking forward. And if we have this hope, then what will come from that hope? What is the byproduct of hope? Paul tells us in Romans 15, joy and peace. As we believe in God, as we're believing in him, we have joy and peace. And watch how this works because the Holy Spirit then causes all that to come together so that we don't just have a little bit of hope. Romans 15 tells us that what? We abound in hope. Hope abounding, hope overflowing. The word means to have an abundance of. What do we have an abundance of in 2024 America? Well, we have an abundance of prosperity. We have abundance of comfort. We have an endless abundance of things that you can buy on Amazon that will be shipped to your house 24 hours later. We have an abundance of all of those things. And with it, we have what? An abundance of depression, an abundance of fear, worry, and anxiety. An abundance of all of those things. That's what's in short supply in our culture today. There's only one true object of hope, and it is the God of hope. We look also, he includes the Holy Spirit in this mix because this all happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does many things, has many jobs we observe in Scripture, and one of them is to cause us to bear fruit in other words, to grow outwardly so that people see these things. You look at an apple tree, you see it's growing apples, you're like, wow, that's a healthy tree. I think I'll have an apple. On us, we bear, we grow spiritual fruit as we follow him. As we do that, as we're in the long, slow walk of faithful obedience, spiritual fruit grows in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And once again, we have another proof of God's truthfulness. Here's the third proof. God's truthfulness is confirmed by the fruits of the Spirit. It's confirmed in the fruits of the Spirit. Look at how our three-in-one God is at work here. God the Father has the plan of salvation. God the Son enacts the plan of salvation. God the Holy Spirit, among many other things, applies the benefits of this plan. And in context here, the way the Holy Spirit applies those benefits is what? He causes spiritual fruit to grow in us so that people see it like joy and peace and hope. And I'm sure that you are thinking of Galatians chapter 5, where Paul details 
the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Did you catch that last part? It answers how we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit. It answers how the Holy Spirit makes that fruit grow by crucifying the flesh in our lives, by killing sin. In other words, contrary to maybe the, the contemporary evangelical squishiness belief, right? We don't just accept Jesus into our hearts and go into our room and close the door and open the Bible and then this wave of peace and joy and hope comes over us in the privacy of our own room. Sometimes that happens. But if we're looking for that to happen every day, it's not going to happen. If we're looking for that to be the source of our hope, our feelings, that's not going to happen because our feelings change. What does Paul in Galatians connect the fruit of the Spirit with? Getting after it, killing sin, crucifying the flesh. Our Christian walks are not better or worse depending on the level of peace and joy we have in our lives. We shouldn't live our lives by our feelings but in order to get peace and joy, we have to hope in God. And as Paul says, in Romans, we are in him as we are believing in him, meaning we are actively trusting him. And then Paul in Galatians says, how do we do that? We live like it. We kill sin. We crucify the flesh. Believing is active. It means aligning ourselves with God and not sin. It means walking in a way that is worthy of our calling. I cannot tell you how much joy and peace personally I have received, and also seeing others when they finally confess and repent of their sin. Some people are dragging around sin for years and miserable and hopeless, without peace, without joy. Once you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Paul says, after you get after it, after you crucify the flesh, as you're believing in him, guess what? Fruit grows. Spiritual fruit grows. Love, joy, peace. The fruits that we see are the evidence of God's truthfulness in Jesus Christ. As we put sin to death, we confirm our calling. Then that's a really, really important word that Paul used back in verse 8. Of Romans 15, he says, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. This is how he's confirming his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his truthfulness. 2 Peter 1.10, using the same word, says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, 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 hold on here. Like, I was saved. Like, I prayed a prayer when I was six. I, I filled out the card. I threw the stick in the fire. Like, I did it. What do you mean I have to confirm my calling? Well, you confirm your calling by living it, by actually walking it out. That's what it means to confirm. Colossians remind us, reminds us, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established, same word, confirmed in the faith as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. How often do we think that our level of hope is directly affected by our level of faith 
And how often do we think our level of faith is directly connected with our level of holiness? Paul says this happens as we're believing, as we're trusting, as we really walk this out, as we really connect the dots and actually live like a Christian, that's when hope is unlocked. Are you, are we, living in known patterns of sin? Then don't expect too much hope. Sometimes I'll sit with people and they're miserable and then they confess their sins, which makes them feel better, but I say, good, that's why you're miserable. (laughs) You're not supposed to be happy in sin. It doesn't work that way. It throws up all these yellow flags that say, deal with it. And perhaps most encouraging is the way this confirmation ties back to our hope. In Hebrews 6.19, listen to this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Did you catch that word? An anchor of the soul. Amidst everything else, no matter how hard the winds are blowing and no matter how high the waves get around us, we are anchored Our soul is anchored in hope because it has a hope that entered the inner place behind the the curtain. Why? Because Jesus went there. Because the Messiah went there. Because Jesus removed the separation between us and God. Hope is directly tied to Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit points to in teaching all things and reminding us all things that he's taught in his word. This is no ordinary hope, church. This is not a cultural hope. This is an overflowing hope based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and it all comes back to him as the truthfulness of God because Jesus actually did it. He did what he said he would. He can be trusted and if we trust him actively, we will abound in hope. So here's the big idea this morning. God's truthfulness brings us abounding hope. God's truthfulness brings us abounding hope. Do you see how biblical hope is not a fleeting wish dream? It's based on an object, and that object is Jesus Christ, who actually showed up, who actually did the work perfectly. Do you see how the hope is tied to the character and attributes of God himself? God has proven his truthfulness. Therefore, we can have hope. Ultimately, we see how abounding hope is a real concrete tangible thing for the Christian because God did what he said he would do. He sent Jesus the Messiah. We see truthfulness confirmed in the way the Messiah was sent to Israel, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. We see God's truthfulness confirmed in the way that Jesus was not only sent to Israel but to all the nations so that all the nations would be blessed through Israel. We see God's faithfulness or truthfulness rather confirmed in our own lives As New Covenant Christians, the more faithfully we follow Jesus, the more holiness we pursue, the more sin we put to death, the more mature we grow in our faith, the more spiritual fruit grows in our lives, the more hope we actually walk in. God is truthful, church. He's the very definition of the word truth. And God's truthfulness brings us not only a level of hope to get us through our Mondays, but to abound in hope for all of life. What does this mean? This means for those in Christ, no marriage is hopeless. No parenting situation is hopeless. 
No dead-end job is hopeless. No situation where we have unsaved friends, loved ones, or even our own children is hopeless. No illness is hopeless. No death can even be hopeless because God is truthful. That's why we can have hope. Because Jesus Christ came. The king has come. Jesus proves God's truthfulness. God did what he said he would do. And Jesus did the work completely and perfectly. And we can look back at the cross and say with surety that God's truthfulness brings us abounding hope. Father, we thank you for your word, which confirms your character, which points us to rock-solid examples that we can see in your word, where Paul uses time and time again Old Testament passages to prove your truthfulness. Lord, may we be people of truth in our own lives and dealing with others. May our yes be yes, because Jesus' yes was yes. Because he actually came. He actually did the work that you told him to do. He did it out of love. He did it out of his own free will. He did it out of obedience to you and the plan of God to redeem all who would come to him by faith. Lord, help us to walk in these things. Help us to have that abounding hope that is only through Jesus, the evidence of our truthful God. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.